This podcast of the Radio Cafe comes to you via radiocafe.org, where you can find more information and many other podcasts. Technical support comes from Studio X, providing website design, hosting, e-commerce, and social media marketing, serving Santa Fe to the world since 1994. Find out more at studiox.com. We're talking today to Roger Weens. He's the leader of the ChemCam project on the Mars Curiosity rover, and he's part of the Space Remote Sensing Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's author of the book Red Rover, Inside the Story of Robotic Space Exploration from Genesis to the Mars Rover Curiosity. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Well, thank you, MC. The Mars Rover, it's called Curiosity. It's a vehicle roughly the size of a small car. It was built by NASA, sent to Mars about five years ago. And you work with the team that developed the ChemCam, that stands for Chemistry Camera. Let's talk about what that is. You have a bumper sticker on your car that says, My Other Vehicle Zaps Rocks on Mars. Yeah, so ChemCam is a a laser instrument. It shoots powerful laser pulses out to about up to 25 feet away. And what we say is that th- this laser pulse has the energy of a million light bulbs, and it, but it only lasts for a five billionths of a second. And when you, uh, uh, when you have that short of a time, it, it really doesn't uh, require that much power from the rover, only a few watts. So we focus that laser beam down to a, a spot the size of a pinhead, and what happens is the poor atoms on the surface of this rock just get zapped. So we create a plasma that's about 10,000 degrees, and it shines like a little spark. And so the color from that little ball of plasma is what we look at through a little telescope on the mast of the rover, and the color actually tells us the composition of the rocks and the soils around the rover. And from that, we can deduce a lot about the rocks and the soils and where they came from and how, how they were produced. And so what are some of the things that you've actually found and how much of it has been new and surprising? So we found, first of all, uh, the rover landed in a, in a crater that's 90 miles across, and it's a place that we thought might have had water in the past. Mars is kind of cold and dry now, but it has the appearance, it has gullies, it has canyons, and so it really looks like it did have uh, water running at some time in the past. Well, there's some formations that, I mean, people can see them on the internet that look like river deltas. Absolutely. But the skeptics said, well, we don't have the, where's the evidence for this water? And so we had not been in a place where that really looked like it really had been an ancient river or an ancient lake. And so we landed in this, in this deep place called Gale Crater. And within the first 100 days or so, we started really getting evidence that there were uh, rivers here at one time, and, in, and then it had been an ancient lake for a long period of time. So just to explain a little bit, on Earth, along a riverbed, you will produce rocks from the sort of pebbles and gravel by sort of cementing them together, and and it's called a conglomerate. It's like a natural cement. Well, we started seeing these things on Mars, and the pebbles are rounded, and we know from the roundedness of the pebbles that they had been washed down in a stream and jostled along until, for a number of miles, until they really got completely rounded by all of this, uh, all of this stream action. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't happen unless there's water. That's exactly right. Some other things that we've started to find then were, there were a lot of beds of sandstone, 
This is fine-grained rock, but it was it was all kind of in layers, and it was tilted in one direction. That direction was toward the center of the crater. And eventually, by looking at these over a distance of several miles, we started to realize that these are formations that you would see, say, at the mouth of the Mississippi if, the, say, the Gulf of Mexico were to dry up. So we started to really realize that all the sediment had been brought down from the rim of the crater and from above that and filled in this crater with a lot of sediments, meaning that this must have been wet and been a large lake for a very long period of time. There are other instruments on Mars, including straight-ahead cameras, and there are these pictures that are coming back that look so much like southwestern landscape photography, these dry, vast canyons, like the canyons of Utah. Or parts of New Mexico. Yeah. And so right now, the rover has been driving past uh, a region of buttes. And so you could say it looks like, say, parts of northwestern New Mexico or even some other other parts of, of our state. Yeah. Absolutely. It's been very picturesque. What is the speed of the rover? I guess it doesn't move around very fast. That's right. About a tenth of a mile an hour. A tenth of a mile an hour. Yeah. And so do you control it on Earth with like a joystick or something? We actually cannot joystick this rover. It's too far away. And so it takes the radio waves between three and a half minutes and 20 minutes each way. And so you can imagine if you were sitting with a joystick and there was a cliff that you start, suddenly saw coming up, it could be up to 40 minutes before the rover could actually turn. It might be too late. So what we do instead is we program this rover to operate robotically for the whole day or on a weekend or holiday of the whole weekend, even a long weekend then it gets the data back to us kind of at the end of its day. And so it trickles data back once or twice a day. And we get about 40 megabytes from Mars each day by this pipeline. We're talking to Roger Weens about the Mars Curiosity rover. The Curiosity rover will go 10 miles in four years. Okay, so there's only so much of Mars we're going to see that way. What do we know about the rest of the planet, and how do we know it? We know quite a lot about Mars from orbit. There are several satellites orbiting Mars. One especially has very high-resolution camera capabilities so that we can see things like the rover just sitting there on Mars. So if you, you might have seen pictures of the rover from overhead taken from uh, 200 miles up, that's pretty cool. So it doesn't necessarily take selfies, but its friends take pictures of it. The rover does take selfies as well. So this is the first rover equipped with a camera on its arm. And so it does just like uh, we do. Every once in a while, we will get a selfie where it will hold out its arm and get a picture of the rest of the rover. And in fact, I think this weekend it might be planning to take another one like that. And does it do that for maintenance and so that you can see how it's functioning? Yes, we use that Molly camera on the arm as a check for different things, for looking at the wheels, for looking at uh, the, the dust that might have settled on the rover, and many other things. What kind of problems have arisen, and how do you deal with them? Have they all been sort of foreseen because of this many-generation process of space exploration? Most of the problems are completely not foreseen because we would have already built uh, to mitigate any of those. 
but there's a couple of things. Uh, one on the rover that was a little bit unforeseen, and that is that the wheels are wearing a little bit faster than we expected. And that was seen already three years ago, but uh, the fact that we've actually driven over a little bit softer terrain as a result of that has helped to mitigate that problem. On our own ChemCam instrument, uh, we ran into a, a real problem just a little over a year ago. This problem was that we have to focus our little telescope at the targets that we shoot and uh, we use a little laser pointer and we turn that on before we focus it. And remember this has to all be done robotically. So we need that little laser pointer turned on so we illuminate the target and uh, start our focusing. When we turned that laser pointer on about a year and a half ago we started to see that it was getting dimmer and dimmer and we go, oh no, uh, we don't have any backup little laser pointers. or. Uh, <laughs> And we didn't have, at that time, a backup way to focus this telescope, and so we could have been done. Fortunately, we do take pictures with the ChemCam as well. That's why it has the cam part of it in the name. And uh, so we started to think about what it would take to look at the pictures on board and figure out which ones were in focus. So we did that. We, we took a series of pictures at a little bit different focus positions, had the rover or actually the instrument, analyze them and figure out which one was in focus and then go to that position. And so now we've programmed, we've reprogrammed the instrument, ChemCam, to do that. So now it can refocus itself again, even after this failure. These must be interesting days for <laughs> for these teams. And they're, I mean, they're big teams. You've got international cooperation. You've got different institutions all working together on these things. Yes, ChemCam is actually a binational instrument, and there was a, a French postdoc who was at Los Alamos some time ago when we were first planning and, and thinking about this instrument. He went back to France, and I told him that we should collaborate on this, and so as a result, ChemCam is now is half French, half U.S., so that means the American taxpayer only pays half as much, and we get the added advantage of having some French cuisine from time to time and learning about French culture. And you're also, you have been honored, you are a knight, you've been knighted by the government of France. Oh, you would have to mention that. But anyway, yes, <laughs> yes. So uh, they, uh, they are very happy that I am leading this uh, joint French-U.S. instrument. But it's been very enriching for us, and these, these teams are a fairly good size. We have about uh, 10 people at Los Alamos who are working with us, but there are also other people around the U.S. who are working on ChemCam with us, and then a, sort of a, a, the same size team over in France. Let's go back a moment and talk about the day when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars. As you told us a moment ago, it actually takes several minutes, maybe up to 20 minutes or more, for signals to come back from Mars. So you, That's right. once the instrument arrives there, you can't watch it in real time exactly. That's exactly right. And there are these seven minutes of landing that is that you call, or people call, the seven minutes of terror. Describe that to us. Yes. Yeah, so as the spacecraft is approaching Mars, the first thing it does is it starts to sense the upper atmosphere. And so the, the rover is encapsulated inside of this uh, one of these capsules, like uh, humans used to come back from the moon and so on. 
And so this capsule starts to experience the deceleration hitting the, the, the upper part of the atmosphere. That takes it a little while and it goes through uh, a strong deceleration from the really high speeds it's going in space. And then as it's kind of then uh, still plummeting down, a parachute is deployed. And this is actually the biggest parachute that's ever been used outside of the Earth. And this parachute has to survive the deployment in a supersonic environment. In other words, it's the capsule is still going faster than the speed of sound. After that parachute comes out, then the capsule is still coming down at 100 miles an hour because the Mars atmosphere is really quite thin. It's only 1% as thick as the Earth's atmosphere. And so as this gets a couple of miles from the ground, then uh, it actually drops the rover out of the capsule and then the rover has on top of it a sort of a retro rocket package and that's called the sky crane because that slows the rover down more brings it near the ground but then there's this big question of well how do you get rid of this retro rocket package and the um, I guess I could say the harebrained engineers at JPL Jet Propulsion Laboratory which designed this designed this so that it would actually uh, lower the rover as if from a helicopter but it's a retro rocket of these rockets that are firing blasts of propellant and lowers it to the ground and then it just cuts these cables and this sky crane just flies off and ditches and that leaves the rover on the ground. But the wheels don't even deploy on the rover until it's a few feet above the ground. So it's a really scary thing to, to think about. And so in the moments where that is happening, there's a room full of engineers who've spent untold years and blood and sweat of their lives working on this, waiting to see if it happens. That's right. And I think they went through some... Uh, some hardening or some some training to help them uh, kind of uh, stand up to the kind of the media when this was happening because they didn't know what the final outcome would be and so they were announcing things as they just heard little bits of data they didn't even have a video or anything like we have now uh, later on was played back from the rover and so they were announcing things as they saw them but they never knew what was going to happen next and even when the rover was on the ground they were told, uh, well, uh, we don't know if, the, say, the sky crane might crash on top of the rover, so let's count to 10 before we declare success. That's exactly what they did. Were you there? I was there at JPL, yes. And the jubilation can be found online and can be found, I think there was a NOVA documentary yeah, about absolutely. this, too. I was in a group of scientists. There are almost 400 scientists who are involved from around the world in, in the whole rover, all 10 instruments and so on. But I was probably one of the more paranoid ones because the previous project that I had been on, this capsule called Genesis uh, that came back from, uh, it was actually the first one to come back from deep space and return to Earth actually crashed in the Utah desert back in 2001. And that was a very simple type of parachute deployment and landing, and yet the whole thing went haywire. And so if that simple system of NASA's didn't work, how was this rover with 76 different pyrotechnic devices going to land successfully on Mars? And so I was really paranoid. Everyone else was kind of treating it like a party night, and I was uh, sitting there thinking, oh, what's going to happen next? And it worked, and four years, almost five years later, it's still running around doing its thing. Yes. We're talking to Roger Weens about the Mars Curiosity rover. Let's talk about really the point of all of this. Is it 
pure knowledge, like we go there because we can, we want to know what Mars really looks like. Are there applications to it? Is it all about whether Mars ever was habitable? Yes. <laughs> all of those <laughs> all things. Of those. Yes. So in the broad picture, we humans were made to explore. Absolutely. And uh, Mars is the next planet over. It has 24-hour days. It has a thin atmosphere. It has dust storms. It has weather. Uh, and you know from the movie that we saw last year, many of us, people will be on Mars someday. And that's the place where we're going to go. So we are doing this for the future generations. We are also, of course, looking to the past to try to understand whether there was ever life on Mars. So here in the early part of the solar system, we had two habitable planets. We had Earth and Mars. Both of them had oceans, lakes, rivers. Why wouldn't both of them have life? And so that is one of the questions we're trying to find out. And even for people who say would, would insist that life was only created on Earth, I could still tell them that they might also find life on Mars because we have uh, meteorites that have come from Mars. They've been blasted off of Mars in big impacts. We have over 150 of those and we know that they're from Mars. If that has happened, which it has, then why would we not expect that there might have been pieces of Earth that would have bacteria on them that would have been blasted off of Earth and made it to Mars sometime in the past? So why wouldn't we find that at least that life on Mars? So when we're talking about the past, do you have any sense from the data that's come back from Mars, from Curiosity and so on, how old that life would be had it existed? So we know from the studies that we've done that this lake in Gale Crater is very ancient. Uh, and uh, so the rover is actually dating some of these rocks. Uh, you've probably heard about radiometric dating. And we have the methods to date the rocks on Mars. And the dates that are coming back are over three and a half billion years old. So a very, very long time ago. That's about when life started on Earth. That's right. And that's exactly why we're interested in looking for life there on Mars, too. Now, is there any water on Mars anywhere right now? There is water, but it is in ice and it's near the poles. There is also water underground. We don't know how much there might be of groundwater. There is certainly a lot of ice below the surface in the higher latitudes. We also see some very tantalizing things different places on Mars in these gullies, and these are called uh, slope streaks or recurring slope linea. It's only been seen from orbit because these are in very steep places, but in the summer season, these dark streaks appear as if they're going downhill and wetting the surface. But we don't know if that's water or not. So that is uh, one mystery that we're still trying to find out about. And one of the a couple of the cameras on the Curiosity rover are looking for some of these. We're not going to go real close to any of them because of the steepness of where they would be found. But we can look at them from a ways away. So we're trying to understand them. them. Yeah, you don't want the rover to tip over. Nope, absolutely. I can imagine that maybe there was or possibly is some kind of life on Mars. But really... I mean, given the low gravity, given the thin atmosphere, given the temperature, why would we want to have human beings go there? It's for exploration, first of all. 
and I think there is a special excitement about wherever humans can go, whether it's the space station, whether it's the astronauts that went to the moon. So Mars is our next destination. But beyond that, I do think that uh, there will be attempts, probably not in too many years, but it, it could be a next century where people will try to colonize Mars. And it could become habitable if we work on it, I think. What would you have to do to make Mars habitable? I think there's different levels of habitability. And so you could imagine people having to still breathe with air packs or something like that, first of all. To really make Mars or someplace habitable, you would have to make it so that we could breathe the air, and that would take major, major efforts over millennia. But you know that if we can change things on Earth, which is a much larger planet, we can also change things on Mars. Do you ever think that maybe three and a half billion years ago, Martians ruined the atmosphere of Mars the way we are quickly ruining our own atmosphere if we're not careful and then colonized Earth? Well, there, no, there's no way that there were Martians on Mars three and a half billion years ago because we would have seen manifold evidence of that, and we just don't, don't see that. So three and a half billion years from now, will there be, let's say we wipe out all life on this planet somehow, would there still be three and a half billion years from now evidence on Earth of us? That's a good question, but Mars is different, actually. Because remember, there is, there is not the kind of weather on Mars that we have on Earth. Even on Earth, you can go to some place like the desert or to Egypt, say, and you can find all of this, these things that were so well preserved over millennia on Earth. And then you can go to some place that's much wetter and you don't find things preserved very long at all. So Mars is excellent at preserving things. And that's also, of course, why we're so interested in looking at its past. What's next? Do you use the Curiosity rover indefinitely until it breaks down, basically, till it stops sending back signal? That's right. Uh, Curiosity was designed for two years of operation, and uh, our uh, manager at Jet Propulsion Laboratory basically said that any time after that, the warranty is off, so to speak. So we're, uh, we'd like to have an extended warranty, but uh, there is no such thing on Mars. Uh, things can break, and nobody's going to go there and fix them. But as we see things now, this rover could last uh, several more years, and we have some really interesting terrain to explore. We're actually coming, uh, we're going farther up a high topographic feature called Mount Sharp. It's actually three miles high, and there's a large gully that comes down the slope of this mountain, and we're getting closer and closer to that area. And so we really think there's going to be some very interesting things revealed there. Is there a next Mars rover in the works? There is. And in fact, there's probably more than one, but the U.S. and NASA is uh, basically building almost a twin of Curiosity, but for some quite different purposes. Eventually, someday, we want to get samples back from Mars, and if we're ever going to send humans and get them back from Mars, we have to demonstrate that with something else. And so this new rover, which we're just designating as Mars 2020 right now because it's going to launch in 2020, it is supposed to actually collect samples on the surface of Mars. It's going to leave these samples in a little pile, and then hopefully there will be a future mission that will come along with a, a rocket big enough to actually get those samples off of Mars and get them back to Earth. 
And so we are starting that process. And another thing it's doing is it's demonstrating that we can produce oxygen for astronauts in the future. So there's an instrument that will produce oxygen on this Mars 2020 rover. Produced it from what? The atmosphere of Mars is carbon dioxide. It's a thin atmosphere, but of course we can't breathe carbon dioxide. Plants can, so it would be great if we could uh, send a little beanstalk to grow, but uh, that's another whole other story. But we can make oxygen out of the CO2, and so this uh, instrument called MOXIE is going to generate oxygen and just show we can do that. Now, if you were to go to Mars with cold-tolerant plants that photosynthesized, is that something that people think about? Yeah, a colleague of mine, this was actually some years ago already, uh, sent a proposal to NASA to um, uh, to grow a beanstalk on Mars, which is why I mentioned that. And uh, so this would uh, be in a, in a little greenhouse, so it would keep it warm enough, but it would use Mars soil and it would give it some water uh, and then just see, uh, you know, with cameras, what's going to happen. It'd be, it'd be very fascinating. Are there any ethics around stuff like that? There are some international treaties, and NASA has a planetary protection office, which is really designed to do two things. One is to protect us from bringing anything back that could contaminate Earth, and the other is to to prevent us from contaminating other planets. And so this would have to be uh, a sterile bean, <laughs> not, not allow anything else to live beyond its lifetime. Um, so I don't know the feasibility of that since I'm... Not exactly a biologist, but uh, that would be a very interesting thing. If you could go to Mars, would you? I am happy, actually, to explore it robotically. I, I know many other people who say they would uh, go there in an instant. Um, I'm just, uh, I, I just love what I do. Here on Earth. Yes, absolutely. Now, how is this work applicable to other parts of the solar system? I mean, you're working on the ChemCam, which is on Mars, but there's all kinds of exploration of the solar system in other places. Yes, there really is. Uh, NASA is doing a whole lot of things that, that most of us just don't even hear about. For example, some of the things that we are thinking about, the planet Venus is another sister planet, but it's closer to the sun, and it has a very thick atmosphere and a very strong greenhouse effect, which means that this planet is more than boiling hot. It is really hot. But we would like to understand the rocks on that planet, so we would love to be part of a landing mission that goes there and explores that. We have the possibility to do that with a technology like ChemCam, where we can fire a laser some distance away. So while the uh, lander itself would have to be protected from this hot and thick atmosphere, uh, we could shoot the laser out of a window and make many measurements, whereas other technologies could only make, maybe make one measurement before the whole capsule uh, burns up. That's one example. There's interest in places like uh, the icy moons of Jupiter, partly because at least one of them has an ocean underneath its ice cap. And uh, wherever there's oceans, there might be uh, some interesting things. People have speculated, of course, that, that that might also harbor life. So to try to explore that, we would love to be on uh, something that would land on that planet or that moon as well. So great places to go. Roger Weens is leader of the ChemCam on the Mars rover. He's at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. To support the program, you can go to radiocafe.org. Many thanks to StudioX.com for their technical support and web design.